there, Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment here. Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series, Our Dealer Story. In this first of a two-part interview, Alan Stenham from our staff sits down with the Rostozzi family of Stoats Equipment at their Avondale, Arizona store. The dealership, originally named Arizona Machinery, was founded by Fred Elder and two partners in 1947. Diane, who's Fred's daughter, and her sons, Tom, Rob, and Teddy, share the story of how the dealership became Stoats Equipment, including how their father, Ferenc Rostozzi, a Hungarian immigrant who was a chemist, came to run the business. Ferenc passed away in 2017, but the impact he had on his family and the family business can be heard in how his family remembers him. All three sons had plans outside the dealership, but were eventually talked in to coming on board by their father. Well, I want to be out doing something. And I did tell him at one point, I said, Dad, I just want you to try to remember what you were trying to do when you were 40. Because when you were 40, you weren't thinking like this. And I, actually, I have the proof right here. <laughs> you weren't thinking like this. Um, so yeah, so he always, we always worked it out. That was Tom Rostozzi talking about the generational difference between him and his father when it came to making business decisions and taking some risks. Before we head over to the Rostozzi's, I wanted to thank our sponsors, HBS Systems, a multi-generational company that for over 30 years has provided leading-edge systems and software technology designed specifically for ag and construction equipment dealers. Thanks for making this new podcast series possible. We'll jump into the conversation with Tom talking about how each of them got involved in the business. Let's get things going. Here's Alan's conversation with Tom, Rob, Teddy, and Diane Rostozzi of Stoats Equipment. I'll start with that. So um, I was in college, so we moved down here for my dad to run the business when I was nine. And then through high school, I think all of us basically, all the boys had summer jobs that were ag slash dealership related, um, either working for a local farmer or working here in the dealership. Um, coming out of finishing college, I was engaged to my high school sweetheart. I had a couple of job offers. Um, my dream was to run my own business someday, but weirdly enough, I never thought it would be this business. I always thought it would be something else. This was dad's business, this wasn't my business. Um, so I came home for spring break my senior year to sit down with my wife-to-be and decide with her which job offer we wanted to take, decide where we were gonna live. Um, and while I was home, my dad sat me down and said, well, while you're considering those job offers, why don't you think about coming to work here? Consider this job offer. And in classic dad fashion, he offered me less money than anybody else had offered me. But the one thing he said to me, which kind of caught me was he said, you know, those other jobs are great jobs and you'll learn a lot and gather great experience. But you know, there's one decision you have to make at some point in your life, and that's whether or not you want to run this business or work to do this for a living. And that's the only the only way you can make that decision is to come here and try it. That's the one thing you can't learn in any, any of those other jobs is whether or not you want to do this for a living. Um, so that just kind of stuck with me. And so I decided to take his job offer, even though he was a little cheap. Um, I, um, so I came and I thought my original plan was to go back to business school and and then circumstances wound up. I didn't. I stayed here, and I, I loved it here. Within a year, I knew this was what I wanted to do, so I was here. What year was it? I graduated from college in 87, 87. so I started in the summer of 87 full-time. Yeah. Okay. So Rob's story is a little different. So my story is probably more interesting. <laughs> um, I graduated college. They'll get better as we go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of one-upmanship here. Can we, is there a black sheep we can, you know, get into the bed, you know, the conversation? I think first I should say, I don't think any of them ever planned on being there. I was going to say, that's the one thing in common, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we, yeah, we had jobs growing up. Uh, one summer working in the parts department, one summer working in the service department. 
overhauling cotton pickers and a summer doing computer programming. So I did that through college, never had any intention or desire to come work here. Graduated college, didn't know what I wanted to do. Moved to LA, got a job working at a law firm and decided to go to law school. So I went to law school at UCLA, got out of law school, did not want to be a lawyer, but decided that I should, if I was ever going to give it a shot, I should give it a shot because it would make a nice living for me. So I, I did, I got a job back here in Phoenix and uh, worked at a law firm. Hated it. Told my dad after probably a year and a half that I was going to be quitting and I didn't know what I was going to do next, but I was planning on taking a backpack and traveling the world a little bit. So my plan was I was going to head down to Australia and New Zealand with a backpack and just sort of travel. And I kind of, in my mind, I was going to take a year and just go enjoy being young and not having any responsibilities. So my dad must have conspired with Tom. And uh, <laughs> I'm uh, looking back now, I think he probably was worried that I was going to turn into a, some sort of bohemian <laughs> wanderer. But what he told me was that he said, well, what are you planning on doing next? And I said, I don't know. And he talked to me about coming to work for the family business. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm open to that. I don't have any other better plans right now. So if I'm ever going to try it, now would be a good time. But I said, but I'm going to take this time and go travel. And uh, so my dad said, well, we think we might have an opportunity to acquire our neighbor to the south. And if we do, we need more management talent. So it would really be better for us if you would cut that trip short. And instead of a year, why don't you travel for, oh, maybe six weeks. So that's what I did. So I went for six weeks. I went to New Zealand, Australia. I came back. I came to work for the dealership. And... We acquired that dealer to the south of us, I believe, 17 years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that my dad missed was that Rob's a real slow learner. Yeah. So we had to wait till Rob was up to speed. Yeah. yeah. Before <laughs> to buy that dealership, yeah. right? So I've always told them they still owe me a one-year sabbatical, which I've never taken. But uh, so anyway, so I started here then, and uh, I didn't know this is what I wanted to do. I started, and I think it was announced that I was going to be here on kind of a trial basis, and... Uh, and then it ended up somehow it ended up sticking and here I am <laughs> 25 years later. Yeah. So all good. That's my story. So tell, what was going on um, now? Your husband. And yes. I, Wait, hold on. You have to tell what Rob said on the phone when you talked to him about coming to work for us. The two things he said about his job being a lawyer. Oh, oh, well, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. So I just remember periodically, you know, at family gatherings asking Rob when he was practicing as an attorney, how he liked his job. Cause it was always sort of a thing that I don't think the rest of us really got, you yeah. know, why he was being an attorney. <laughs> um, and so the, the dad one, thought it was a great idea, by the way, he, he wanted to have an attorney in the family, <laughs> of course. Yeah. 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 Is it a resource? Immigrants, immigrants always want to have an attorney in the family and a doctor in the family. That's <laughs> what you're always supposed to do next generation. So perhaps um, Pop supplied both. Yeah, yeah, he did. So I, I, one time I asked Rob how his job was, and he said, I am repulsed by what I do. <laughs> and then another time I asked him how his job was, and he said, my job is like a roller coaster. And when it's at the very, very peak, it's almost bearable. And both times I thought, yeah, you're not long for that career. Yeah. But tell them what the other attorneys said when you left. Yeah, the firm I worked for was about 40 attorneys. 
And so when I told everyone I was leaving, I walked around and I basically went to every office and just told people I was leaving and I was going to travel and then I was going to go work for a family business. And almost every one of them said, gosh, they wish they had an opportunity like that. that uh, <laughs> Take me with you. Yeah, you didn't get the sense they were all in love with what they were doing, but I don't want to badmouth the legal profession. Yeah, but, uh, it's not for everybody. It, wasn't, it just wasn't for me. But. So, Teddy, your turn. I uh, swore I'd never work for the family business. <laughs> I was just like, I love my family and was proud of the business and worked in it in high school growing up. And I wanted to be a lifeguard one summer. My dad said, first, you have to steam clean cotton picker heads in the shop for one summer, and then you can be a lifeguard. But uh, I just want to prove that I didn't need to fall back on it, that I could blaze my own trail. So I graduated from school and um, got a job in the Bay Area in the city, living in San Francisco, and did that for a year and loved it. And I remember I got, had a job with Black & Decker at the time and telling my dad about some job or some project I was working on at work. And my dad would just say, yeah, you need to come work for us. So eventually a job opened up in sales in San Diego. We'd taken over that I think that's the territory you guys are talking about. And they were looking for a salesman in San Diego. And so growing up here in Phoenix, like San Diego was like a second home and uh, always kind of hoped and dreamed that I could like end up living in San Diego at some point. So one thing led to another and got a job with the family business a year after I graduated from college. So that's so why I never worked there. And a year later, there I am. So anyway. Still trying to get to San Diego? Is it? I lived and worked there for about nine years, so I lived the dream and then got sucked back in that. <laughs> I remember Teddy was home. Uh, I don't remember if it was uh, like Easter or Christmas. Or it, was it was President's Weekend. President's Day Weekend. Teddy was home, and he was telling us that he was in the process of applying for another job within Black & Decker. The one he had... He was a territory rep calling on Home Depots in the Bay Area. He was about to apply for one where he'd be like an outside salesman for them, calling on contractors, that sort of stuff. And I told him, I said, well, gosh, Teddy, if you're interested in being an outside salesman, just by coincidence, you know, we have an opening. For an <laughs> and that job was in Fresno. Fresno. No, no offense to Fresno. But <laughs> the Black and Decker Yeah, show. yeah. So I was like, wow, San Diego versus Fresno. <laughs> and, you know, some, sometimes, sometimes it's, I think it's just a God thing because um, it's just by coincidence. Teddy was here like for an extended weekend and the guy who ran the store in San Diego, who was hiring the sales going to be hiring the salesman happened to be in town for a meeting that day. And so like we talked about it on the weekend, I think on Monday, Teddy interviewed with Scott and Scott fell in love with Teddy. But did you know it was an interview? I thought I was just more asking said, him Scott's about... in town. You want to see him because he had yeah, worked for Scott. Yeah. So he knew yeah. Him. yeah. 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 Anyway, it happened pretty fast. Yeah. Now, when did you get in the business? Uh, 2003, so it's been about 16 years. Okay. Crazy. Did you Did you give us your origin story about your starting the business? <laughs> I was going to say, that's the most interesting thing. Yeah, yeah I, I think there's some interesting stuff there. I was, I, I was asking earlier, I know your husband was a chemist, is that correct? Yes, uh-huh. Yeah, and so maybe, maybe talk a little bit how he went from chemist, or how you two went from chemistry to... Well, I was actually thinking back to when you worked for the dealership. There you go. A quick break in the action to invite you to our annual Dealership Mind Summit. Check out this unique management event for farm equipment dealers only at www.dealershipmindssummit.com. It's a quick hit, two-day mastermind style summit that connects you to your peers of all colors. Come participate 
and learn from the very best minds in the ag machinery dealer world, all seeking solutions to your same challenges. www.dealershipmindssummit.com well, I kind of grew up in the dealership. Yeah, you need to talk about how the dealership started. Well, so the, my father was a partner in the business to start with, which was Caterpillar and John Deere together. And then when they decided to separate those two, no, Tom, you're better at all this. Um, well, you work, just tell about when you worked. So when I was in high school, I always worked. What you want to tell us what, years, what your career what? was, what span you when you started and when you finished? With the company. Yeah. Well, I never worked for the company, except in the summers when I was in high school, but way back. It was Caterpillar, John Deere, kind of. We had all they had was, all Arizona. I'm trying to get you to tell us when you were in high school. So What years it was. Oh. <laughs> Yellow. Okay, I graduated from high school in 1959. Okay. So, so now everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody want me to say? Don't I don't know what you know. do. We told about our summer. So I, I worked at, once I was 16 and could work. It was bigger then. My dad was one partner. There were three partners, two Caterpillar partners, and my dad was John Deere. Anyway, I worked there in the summertime. And then when I graduated from high school, the first partner had been bought out, and the second partner decided to retire. So that's when my dad decided he couldn't, and they separated John Deere Caterpillar, and my dad just took three stores, uh, Maricopa County. And so started this Arizona machinery company, just John Deere. Um, that was when I graduated from high school. So then I went to college. I can't remember working here. Yes, I did when it was just when I was in college. I did summers. So um, then I graduated from college, and shortly after I, well, before I graduated, I met my husband, who was uh, kind of a straight Hungarian refugee. At the time, it was 1963, and he had come here in 57. And he had graduated from, or got his PhD from Berkeley. And so I met him, he had this really strong accent, and I, I anyway, we ended up getting married six months later. So. <laughs> so it was pretty good. Yeah. So. The, the Hungarian accent. The Hungarian, yes. Well, you had, you had traveled in Hungary, hadn't you? So I was you were... very fascinated with him. That was the main draw. Okay. Because I had been in Hungary in 1962 or one, I forget, and it was totally Iron Curtain country communist, no tourists or anything there. So just lots of dark buildings with big red stars on top and that kind of thing. So I was so fascinated with him. I didn't realize that what that was going to mean. <laughs> <laughs> tell so him anyway. his pickup line. Okay, so, okay, well, this is interesting, I guess. So I graduated a quarter early from college, and I, so my roommate and I were, we graduated from Stanford, and we were going to secretarial school for that last quarter so, so, so we sorry. could get a job. Just think about how different the world was. She and her friend graduate from Stanford University, mm-hmm. and the next thing they have to do is go to secretarial school so they get a job. That's right. Yeah. So it's a crazy world. My roommate had gone into San Francisco. We were in Palo Alto, and she had gone into San Francisco for a job interview with the IRS. And I was down at the swimming pool by the apartment where we lived by myself, getting my tan. This guy came up. I didn't even see him. I was flat on the pavement, closed. closed eyes. And he comes up and says, may I interrupt your dreams for a moment? <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, 
I kind of look up, I think this person's going to ask me what time it is or something, and I'm like, yes, and he sits down and starts talking. And I asked him where he's from, and he said, Berkeley, and I'm like, no, that's not what I mean. <laughs> and he said, Hungary, and I'm like, Hungary? So anyway, anyway, so that's how we met. So I, then, that's he, a great line. It's a great line. <laughs> so we're very happy did. out there using that. <laughs> <laughs> so he worked for Stanford Research Institute at the time. We went back east. We lived in New Jersey. Worked for Bell Telephone Labs, and we came back to California. And then um, my father was sick with lung cancer. He'd been a big smoker all his life, yeah. and um, he passed away in 1973. And so his partner took over running the committee, and then his partner in two years decided that wasn't, he retired, we don't know why. And so my brother was also in the business originally, but when they, they separated out, industrial, uh, John Deere Industrial was one business, ag was a separate. So my brother had the industrial, Ferdinand's had the ag, and so then, yeah, yeah. my dad had the ag, my brother had the industrial yeah. after they separated the two companies. And so then when my dad passed away and his partner then retired, what was going to happen with the ag part? So that's how my husband came into the business. Okay. So rather bizarre. But um, he came here. He, he only wanted to come if he would be president. He just wanted to be the boss. Otherwise, he said, it's not going to work. I was scared out of my wits. I, I was so nervous that he wouldn't be accepted by the customers, by the employees, because such a, as Teddy says, it's bad enough coming in if you're a family, but if you're a Hungarian with a strong accent and family, it's a difficult situation. Yeah, you don't know anything about running a business have, or absolutely have no idea about it. Except his thinking was, what he told me, that he thought that people were people, no matter what they were doing. And that business was business. And he, he was actually had a department where he was. He worked for Varian in the Bay Area, and he managed a department. So he did, you know, he did the budget for the department. He did hiring and firing and all those things. And so he thought, can't be that different. So he came here, he started here, and absolutely had no idea what, he was, what his job was. Nobody told him anything. He kept waiting for the guy retiring to explain to him what it never happened. So anyway, that's how it started. I tell people, you know, so it was basically her brother, our Uncle Tom, who invited my dad to come down here. And, and Tom basically made the decision. I mean, made the decision to offer the job to Ference, and obviously Ference decided to come. But I tell people, I have no idea what my Uncle Tom was thinking when he made that offer. Because no. Ference is a Hungarian chemist. Obviously, he's a smart guy, but he, he's got a heavy Hungarian accent. Which, you know, accents in general, I don't know, in rural America aren't necessarily <laughs> a positive. You from here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. from here. Um, he's not, you know, he knows nothing about agriculture. He knows he hasn't run a business. Yes, he's running a department, but that's a lot different than running a business. It's almost like taking the service manager and saying, okay, now we're going to make you CEO. So uh, it just, it really does blow my mind that my uncle made the offer. And it also blows my mind that my dad said yes mm -hmm. for all the same reasons. Sounds like your uh, uncle was pretty sharp, too. I think my uncle was pretty sharp. And I think, you know, one of the things my dad did tell me about why he did it was when he was working, he was, was always, his jobs were with big companies when he was doing the chemistry stuff. Um, and he said, you know, he was always doing research projects. And he was always concerned that, you know, at the end of the year, 
if the accountants or the leadership decides that your project doesn't have enough potential or um, somebody else's project has more potential, they just decide to cut your budget and they cut your team and you're, you're out and your team's out. And you don't really have a whole lot of control over your own destiny. I think he felt like running a small business like this, he'd have a lot more potential to have control of his own destiny. He was very excited about the idea of being his own boss. And if he had an idea, he could try it. What were some of the challenges that, um, that you, and, you and he ran into when, beyond the, uh, the cultural and the, the, the language and things like that? What were some of the business challenges that you guys were facing? What were some of the things you had to learn along the way? The two of us together, because mm-hmm. most of his business challenges were his. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he just, Tom always says, he just always said that just give me seven good years while I learn what I'm doing. <laughs> and he had it. Yeah. He yeah. had seven good years when yeah, he started. He, he always told me that there's a story in the Bible that describes the business cycle. And it's a story of um, Joseph interpreting dreams for the Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Yeah. And basically, Joseph tells the Pharaoh that what God is trying to tell you is there's, um, you know, there's going to be seven good years where the Nile is going to flow and you're going to have plenty of moisture and the crops are going to be plentiful. And it's going to be followed by seven years of drought and famine. And, and what, the reason God's telling you this now is he wants you to take the excess from the seven good years, store it up in bins, and then that'll carry you through the seven years of drought and famine. And that's basically what Pharaoh wound up doing. And my dad's perspective was that's the business cycle. You have seven good years followed by seven bad years. And and I always tell people that I'm sure on his drive down here to take over the job, he was praying, dear God, please give me the seven good years first because I don't know what I'm doing. And, and if I had the seven good years first, maybe we'd get some grain stored up in time for the seven bad years and I can kind of get things figured out. And it actually worked out. I have a little chart I show people. It's kind of amazing. Um, when he came down from when he came down here in '75 until 1981, um, cotton took over in our territory here, and cotton acreage doubled in the Phoenix area. And if you're a John Deere dealer, about the best place you can be is cotton country because cotton pickers are really good, and they use big tractors to till the ground. And so business was good, and it's pretty fascinating because it was 1975 to 1981. It was seven years, and then. Come the 80s. Get in the mid-80s, and it was seven years of misery. And in that seven years of misery, basically cotton acreage went from the double level back to less than half of what it had been at the peak. So it was it was pretty amazing how that followed um, Joseph's story from the Bible and how how his prayers, his prayers were answered as far as how things were when he started here. I remember his first thing was he really, he didn't... He, it's not like you come and you're told, okay, now, the, he really came, everything blank page. So I remember he told me, oh, and in his office, he had a little office, and the person who had had the office before was completely deaf. It was my father's partner who had retired, and he had his phone all fixed up for a deaf person. So so whenever I talked to my husband, he would say, stop yelling. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so then, and I I just remember the first thing he started doing here. He started, he saw how they were doing inventory, and he decided, okay, this can be done a lot better. And so then he just started working on that project. I remember that was the first thing he talked about. So what he did or how it was, I have no idea, but it was on parts inventory. 
What, what were you, uh, um, did Ference? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. What, what were you and Ference experiencing when Tom and Rob started to enter the picture? What was going on in your minds? Went further into the family. So. Yeah. When, when you guys are starting to approach and, and Ference is uh, putting a little more, you know, he's leaning on these guys a little more, dropping some subtle hints. Well, you know, it's funny about that because I always thought, he obviously, obviously would have loved to have his sons in the business. Mm -hmm. And, and um, but so I was always worried because I always thought they have to make their own decision and they have to do what's the right thing for them. So they'll do it well and be happy. And so um, I always used to say, you know, be telling him, don't just let them decide. Let them. So I don't know how it was from your side about if he was pushy or not, but. I don't know. I didn't want him to be pushy. <laughs> he could have strong opinions on things. <laughs> so, um, but when it ended up that Tom came into the business, I mean, both of us were obviously happy. I mean, here, we flip it. <laughs> Actually, my father, my father, I think, uh, would roll over in his grave thinking about my husband running a business. He, because my father saw him as a PhD chemist from Hungary. Mm -hmm. He knew he was smart. He knew all that, but... What did he call him? He called him the general. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, so, he... Yeah, I'm sure he's extremely... There's happy. one thing about Dad. Like, he had absolute confidence in himself. Zero doubt. Like, if this is... Whatever it is in life, I mean... You never, ever saw him stressed out or well, worried. Well. <laughs> I feel like, from my perspective anyway, I always just felt like he just always exuded just, not bravado, but just very calm well, confidence I in think, his ability. I think he would, I, I describe him as a kind of always a person who, if there's a problem, you look for the solution. It's like he never, like me, you would never say, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about this? Absolutely never. It would just be, okay, here's the problem. He was very logical. Here's the problem. We have to find a solution. Incredibly rational. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he yeah. made, you know, he made um, a number of momentous decisions in his life. Uh, the decision to leave Hungary, I mean, that, we didn't really get into that story, but that's, that was a life risking. I mean, just think about, he's 24 years old. We're going to escape. So it's, it was escaping hungry. It wasn't like leaving. I'm going to go move somewhere else. It was, it was a, a taking your life in your hands decision to just to try to cross the border. And then when you cross the border, where are you going and what are you doing? You have no idea. You speak Hungarian. That's not a language that transfers. You don't have, you don't have any money. Um, he made another momentous decision. He was trying to get a job when he first got here. And then he wound up changing his mind and decided to go back to school, which is another you know, momentous decision. The decision to come down here and take this job, momentous decision. Each, that's a good story. The first job interview that he had that's, when he, you got to tell that. Okay. So let me finish this story and yeah. then that story. So my dad is a fresh refugee in New York, straight off the boat in a refugee camp. And... He's been there long enough that he's ready to start figuring out how to move on with his life. Um, so he doesn't have any money, but he volunteers at a local church, counting the collection plate on Sundays. And they give him some coins to thank him for his time counting the plate. So he has enough money saved up to pay for a bus ride into town 
and get around town and do some job interviews and get back to the refugee camp. So he's a, you know going to try to get himself a job. And he's done his research in the newspapers at the time on the one ads. And he's looking for a job as a chemist because he has a chemistry degree from a bachelor's degree from Hungary. And he doesn't speak English. Doesn't speak English. And his research tells him that a chemist job pays $70 a week is the going rate for a chemist in New York at the time. So he busts into town. He's got 10 or 12 want ads that he's going to chase down for the day. Um, and, and all those stops he makes, there's only one guy who's interested in offering him a job and offers him a job. And the guy offers him $55 a week. And my dad says, no, the fair rate is $70 a week. And they go back and forth negotiating for a while. And finally, the the guy offering the, the job. Guy, the guy was Chinese, by the way. Yeah, he was Chinese. He tells my dad, look, the best I can do is I can offer you $65 a week. And the problem is you don't have an American college degree. If you had an American college degree, we could pay $90 a week. But without an American college degree, the maximum this company would pay anybody is $65 a week. So that's just the best I can do. And my dad said, no, fair rate, 70 bucks. And he left. And I, when he was telling that story, I'm like, Dude, what were you thinking? <laughs> you don't have a job. Yeah. You don't have nothing. anything. Yeah. Take the job, and if you don't like it, you can start working on your next job from there, but at least you've got something. And he said, no. He said, what I learned in the conversation was the value of an American college degree, the value of an, of an education. And so I went back to the refugee camp, and I changed course, and instead of pursuing a job, I started trying to figure out how do I get myself an American degree. Um, and that's how he wound up at Berkeley. Um, and got himself a PhD. So anyway, just another one of his momentous decisions. Where I was going on the momentous decision story was we do an aspiring leaders program here. And as part of that, the first class starts out with the history of the company and the history of the family. And, and while he was alive, we would do that history. And then I'd have my dad come in and answer questions from the employees for like a half hour. And I had a young lady ask once, she said, you know, Ferenc, you've made a number of momentous decisions in your life. Um, when you were in the process of making those decisions, did you ever stress about, you know, what if it doesn't work? You know, what are the downfalls if this doesn't work or things don't go well? What, what happens? And his answer was a little bit longer than what I'm going to tell you. But the gist of his answer was no. <laughs> and and he, he had told me and he's told um, the guy who runs our dairy, we talk about a lot. He says, you know, I just always believed you do your best to make the best decision you can. And then once you've made that decision, you do your best to make sure you were right. And I think that's just how I looked at it. So it wasn't ever, he never really worried about what happens if I'm wrong. It's just, you know, hey, I'm going to do the best to be right. And then once I've done it, I'm going to work my tail off to make sure I'm right. I really like this guy. Yeah, we, we did too. Yeah. yeah, we like him too. Yeah. He's he's pretty cool, pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, that's very impressive stuff. To, to pick up on something like that while you're basically, you know, left with a choice of, hey, would you like to earn a living or not? You know. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I've figured something else out in this conversation. We'll get back to the Stoke story in a minute, but first, I wanted to say thanks to HBS Systems, the sponsor of this series. To learn more about HBS's equipment dealership management systems, visit www.hbssystems.com. After that, head over to farm-equipment.com for the latest industry news. Now back to the story of Stoats Equipment and how the leadership team identifies and prepares its next generation of leaders and the lessons they learn to become a better dealership group. You talked about um, 
you know, some of the professional development. I know we talked about it in the dealership of the year story, and that was a, a pretty unique approach to things. Um, talk, talk a little more about that. Talk about uh, some of the in-house professional development and, and how family dynamic plays into that. Back in 2012, we started a leadership development program um, where it's a series of seven classes that takes two years to go through the whole process. We start a new group every November, December, and then we graduate a group about every November, December. Um, we've had, well, we started in 2012, so I think we're on our seventh group going through the program. Um, every manager in the company has either been through the program or is going through the program now, and then lots of people in the company who aren't managers have been through the program too. It was originally designed with the intention of sort of preparing people to become, to help us grow our own leaders. Um, and I think it's been successful with that. Um, but I think, if anything, it's almost, you know, the program's still the same, but I'm not sure that's the biggest value we get from it anymore. I think, I think the two, I think we get two bigger values from it. I think it has a big impact on just culture in general in the business. Um, and then I think it also has at least the potential to have a significant positive impact on people's personal lives, not just their work lives. Um, I think people get a lot out of the class that helps them be better people. The, the very first class, um, they have to read the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, and at the, end of the, at the end of every class, every participant has to set two or three goals. And the objective of the goals is it has to be something you can get done by the next class, so it's like a three or four month time frame on the goals, um, and and it should be something tied to something you learned in the class. But other than that, we don't care if it's a personal goal or a business goal or you know what you're trying to accomplish. Just what something you want to accomplish, something you're inspired to think about as part of the class. Hopefully, had a really cool story just with this this uh, group that's now what about a year in. I think we have a guy who was a parts guy for us in our Casa Grand store and now runs the parts department for us in our Stanfield store. His name's Lee. And at the fir- after that first class, one of the goals Lee set for himself was to improve his relationships with his kids and his family at home. Um, and then four months later at the next class, um, Lee stood up and told us, he said, you know, I took the stuff from Seven Habits and he said, one of the things I learned from that book was, you know, if my kids are acting out, you know, maybe I should try to understand why they're acting out as opposed to just getting on them because they're acting out. And he said, so it used to be that I'd come home from work and I'd be kind of tired and the kids would act up and I'd just start yelling at them because, you know, I was tired and they're misbehaving. And he said, so instead of yelling at them when I came home from work, I just started talking to them and asking them. So, you know, what's going on and why are you acting this way? And said, it's been amazing how it's changed the dynamics in our, in our household and our family. And he said, in fact, I was talking to my neighbor, telling him about it, and he thought it was so cool. He asked me if he could borrow the book, and so I gave him my book. And so now I got my neighbor reading the Seven Habits book, too. And I just think, you know, that's kind of stuff is just so cool. I mean, that's, you know, when you, I like to tell people we're a family business hopefully in all the positive ways of being a family business, because there can be negative connotations that go along with being a family business as well. Absolutely. Um, but I think, in my mind, I think one of the big positives is um, connecting with people as people and being focused on helping people and trying to help people grow. And, and that, that 
doesn't really matter whether it winds up, you know, being something that makes the business more money or not. It just, what really matters is are you making a difference in the lives of people? Um, so, yeah. So there's, there's lots of stories like that, but I think that's just a cool recent one. That's kind of an example. Yeah. But you've heard people talk about it too. That was the first one that came to my mind. Yeah. It's been, it's been excellent for the people that go through it. I think the biggest thing I've noticed it is just the culture of the business. I think people understand now why we do things the way we do and have had an opportunity to, the best thing about the whole thing is it's the present CEO that's providing the training. So yeah. all the people going through it have an opportunity to ask questions of Tom, to hear straight from Tom, to read the same books Tom read to sort of understand, you know, why we do things the way we do, why we think about things the way we do. Um, I think it's easy without that background for employees to be critical and question and not understand. And when they don't understand, they can immediately attribute, you know, bad intentions or it's easy to be critical. But I think once you've kind of walked the same path in a sense, read the same books, discussed the same issues openly, um, people just come away with a better understanding. So they, they're more at peace with the way things work here and they're, they buy in more. And uh, it's just been really, it's been really good for the business that way. The other thing he didn't mention is pretty much anyone in the dealership can go through the class. You don't have to be selected or have any certain potential. It's really just people that are interested and want to take aspiring leaders um, can do it. And it's a commitment. It's two years. It's, seven classes across two years they have to travel to. Um, so it's a commitment for them, but, but, uh, we've had hundreds of employees go through it. Um, I think I, you know, Tom started out having dad have having my husband, his dad, uh, come and talk about, I guess himself basically. Yeah. And just answer and his, questions. Yeah. Answer questions if they have any of him. And then when he couldn't do it anymore, Tom asked me to do it, which isn't quite as good to say the least. But um, it was inter- it's interesting for me to just sit in there for some of it. And and I remember this one time, I think it was the first time I went, and this, uh, I think it was kind of at the end, you were asking, I just go for one session when he's talking about family history. And uh, you were asking, and he's ju- doing the class, he's just as casual as he is right now. I mean, it's just the same. And... This one person stood up, uh, a woman, and I don't know who it was or where she was from, but she said, I just have to say that I have worked for several companies, and I have never met the president personally like this, and I think this is unbelievable. (laughs) She's like, I've never been in any company where the president would invite us if we wanted to do something like this and come and talk to us and ask us questions and listen to us. So it was really cool. She was like... I can share a couple of other cool stories for those classes. Um, one, kind of a, just a business success story. Um, we have um, a lady who works for us who's been with us, I don't know, 20 years now. And for 17 of those 20 years, she basically did clerical work in the service department. And I always thought she was a bright, talented lady, and I always was just kind of wondered why she never seemed to raise her hand when opportunities for advancement were available in the company. And the first few years we had the classes, she didn't raise her hand, want to come to the classes, and then 
I kind of bugged her a little bit and said, hey, you know, I think you should think about it. And so finally she signed up and she took them. And, and she's a bright, talented lady. And she wound up, um, while she was taking the classes, we had an opening for a service manager in our Chandler store. And she raised her hand for that. And she got that job and she did well. And, um, and a year later, we had some stuff change and she became the general service manager for the whole company. And so she's, you know, grown dramatically, I think, in the process. And it's been a big win for us, too, because that's someone who knows the company intimately who's um, growing up and taking on significantly more responsibility. So that's pretty cool. Another thing that I think that I, a story I love is we, we've had outsiders come and sit through the, at least the very first class, people who are curious about our program. And I had uh, um, some HR people from dealerships in our 20 group come one time a few years back. And when the first class was over, um, one of the HR ladies came up to me and she said, from another dealership, she said, you know, this was so powerful. She said, when you were done telling the story about the family history and the business history, she said, I was ready to come work for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, you know, we haven't even talked about how much he's going to pay me or what I'm going to do, <laughs> but I'm ready, I'm ready to come. And she said, it was just, it just made me realize how powerful and impactful the story, the, you know, a good story is, you know, we have we we are very fortunate that we have we are heirs to you know a really cool story. Mm -hmm. um, but I but I also think every business out there has its own cool story. It's it not does. ours, but it's got its own cool story. And I think if you can do a good job of telling your story, it's just really impactful. People connect to stories. Yeah, yeah. People connect to stories. Stories are the best. Yeah, you, you have to appreciate the story. You know, you gotta you gotta acknowledge it. You know, be able to share it. You know, yeah. some people don't appreciate what they have. Yeah, you know, and and in all fairness, I didn't. I mean, I've always known we have a cool story, but the the story that we that I tell, like in that class, actually originated from um, a local historical society reached out to my dad and said, hey, we'd like you to come present at one of our things and tell the story of your family and your business. And my dad, of course, a good delegator, he <laughs> called me into his office and said, hey, they want me to do this. I think you should do it. It's like, well, I don't want to do it. But so I'm a good son. So I, so I did. I put it together and I presented it at the Historical Society. And I thought that's all it was going to be. But by coincidence, we had one of our long, long serving technicians here in the store. His wife yeah. was catering the event, Bert. Yeah. His wife was catering the event, so he just happened to be there by coincidence. And when I was done, he came up to me and he said, hey, you need to tell that story to everybody. You need to tell that story to the whole company. Nice. Yeah, so that's kind of what got, it was basically Bert, cool. Bert's idea to actually start sharing the story beyond just ourselves. Awesome. Thanks so much to Tom, Rob, Teddy, and Diane for taking the time to sit down and share their story with us. And another thanks to HBS Systems for making this podcast possible. I'd love to get your feedback on the new series, so drop me a line at kschmidt at lessonermedia.com. You can subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn Radio. This will ensure when you're alerted as soon as a new episode is made. Thanks for joining us for part one of our conversation with the Rostozzi family. Stay tuned for part two in our next episode. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt, signing out of the Our Dealer Story Podcast.